And now we have to make sure we can pay for our groceries. SongTrust removes the complexity of the publishing landscape and offers detailed access to data otherwise not directly available, helping songwriters, artists, producers, managers, publishers, labels, lawyers, distributors, and more simplify music rights management and the administration of music publishing assets, performing rights, and digital licensing. SongTrust provides solutions for corporate clients including CD Baby, Downtown Music Publishing, The Orchid, Symphonic, and Sub Pop Publishing. You want to be sure and visit songtrust.com forward slash pubcast to take advantage of their 20% off the one-time registration just for listening to the AIMP Nashville Pubcast. And now let's get on with our episode. Hey everyone, welcome to season three of the AIMP Nashville Pubcast. In this episode of the Nashville Pubcast, we sit with my friend and attorney, Chip Petrie, a partner with Rethal Levy Fields. We break down basic publishing deals and also the complicated world of acquisitions. Why don't you jump in? I'm sure most people that are listening probably know who you are. You want to give a little quick background on yourself? You're giving me too much credit. I have uh, been at this since 1997 practicing law here and mostly in Nashville. I'm with a firm called Ritholtz Levy Fields, opened their Nashville office about five years ago, just over five years ago. In fact, prior to that, I'd been on my own and running a company called Copyright Exchange, uh, which opened its doors in 2004 and was focused exclusively on the topic of the day, selling and uh, buying catalogs and advising clients on both sides of that transactions. I remember we met at the copyright exchange days. I always was so impressed. You guys did such a great job of putting your books together and really owned the market at the time, as, we did. I, as I recall. We did. I uh, don't know that that's claiming too much because I think we were we were first, so it was easy to kind of get out of, in front of it. I got to give a lot of credit uh, for the way we did it to uh, my partner in that business who actually came up with the idea, a man named Gary Smith, who unfortunately passed away in 2008. Um, but had been selling catalogs for a number of years as a business manager and kind of come up with a format that really provided the buying market with the most crucial information so that they can make a quick assessment. That's Um, a perfect leeway point for me because we're going to pretend I'm Tim Hunzi. I have a catalog. I'm pretty uh, oblivious to what it looks like to sell this thing. Let's say I'm coming into your office, Chip, and I've got my catalog. What do you? What does that first conversation look like? What are you going to tell me I need to provide, and what do you need to do what you do on your end? Well, the information is um, sort of the basic 411 on the rights you have and uh, what kind of income it generates. And when it comes to what rights you have, are you a small publisher who owns a catalog uh, built up by acquiring those rights from writers and, and maybe their own acquisitions over time? Are you an individual songwriter who's just been in a pub deal? And, uh, you know, what does your ownership interest look like there? Is it co-pub, uh, full co-pub? Is it only a partial co-pub? If you have co-publishing, you know, do you have co-administration rights coming back to you or available at the time you're looking to maybe do a deal? All of that is you know, hidden in the bundle of paper that is the contract you signed or as a publisher you entered into with your writers over time that are probably stuffed in a, you know, closet or the, <laughs> you know, the filing cabinet somewhere. But I, I I need to see those contracts. 
uh, that are, that describe the rights that we're looking at. And then we would also want to look at, again, the royalty stream. What does the income look like over time? And uh, alongside that, get a description of sort of a, a rough discography. It doesn't have to be perfect and down to every single cut, but certainly some help from the client in knowing where the, ma- the main activity has come from is helpful in, in you know, making a quick assessment from my side. Is this something worth taking to the market? Is it maybe not ready yet? Is it, you know, are there, con- are there rights issues buried underneath that need to be cleared up before we really go to market? Cause they're going to create problems. You know, one example of that, I, I mentioned co-administration rights and, and it really comes into play obviously in a single songwriter uh, situation where a writer has been under contract and has a contract that governs what they can do with their share of the songs. You know, if that, if the post term period that you've agreed to wait before you get your co-administration rights back in that contract are sufficiently far out, it can be a real impediment to getting a deal done because a buyer just flipping to the other side of the deal, they want to know they can take over the ownership interests as well as the administration interests so they can get to work. You know, if they're going to pay you a pile of money, they want to know that they can go out right out the door, preferably, or not far down the road, they're going to get the rights to go out and start licensing stuff, trying to get new exploitations, new cuts, new new placements, all that kind of thing. And what you're referring to typically would be more probably of a, a, a writer having his catalog right. and ready to sell as opposed to a whole company, which right. would more than likely have it all tied up in its own house, right. an, an admin agreement, right? right. Correct. So let's explain basically for those who may not know, admin rights is the uh, right to collect and service and, and work the music and license the music. You want to definitely make sure you... If you have a catalog or if you are an individual writer, what, as, as Chip was just saying, what your rights are, where that's at in your deal, because I can say as a buyer of catalogs, you definitely want the rights. Is it a complete impediment to selling your catalog? I would say no, but it doesn't make it look really good if you can't have those within a short period of time. Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as an absolute impediment, but it it, it can it can be a practical impediment in the sense that it can impair the value and the valuation enough that it just doesn't make sense to do a deal. You know, I've had a, I've had clients where the post-term period was a, a several-year period. It's funny, I had one years ago when the market was blowing up in the you know mid two thousands when all that all the new private equity money first flooded the market. Um, that it was a seven-year delay, maybe on the admin reversion, which was shocking considering the writer who was having to live with those terms, but that's a whole nother story. I didn't do the first deal, so I, I don't have to <laughs> yeah. take a uh, responsibility for that, but uh, we managed to make a deal in that environment, notwithstanding the fact that the buyer had to wait seven years before they could start to administer the copyrights. Now, uh, just fast forward to a year ago, I had a catalog that had a, I want to say it was a five year post-term delay. We had, uh, you know, the deal had been negotiated before certain activity had really blown up for this writer and they hadn't renegotiated to chop that down, which is sort of the first move you make as a writer in a pub deal is always try to chop that that post term period down to as close to the end of the term as you can get it. And that five year period was, a you know, it was a pretty effective bar to getting a deal done because it just people would apply a discount on the valuation they would otherwise give the copyrights based on the activity and whatnot but having to wait that long was was deemed 
uh, enough of a ding that we couldn't get to a price that was agreeable. If you're a writer or a publisher, you want to make sure you have all your contracts together. You want to make yep. sure you know what's in your catalog, get the cuts, the hits, the uh, the pipeline activity holds. When you have multiple contracts, you want to make sure you have your chain of title in line. You have your yep. assignments together, your, all your contracts put together and have that prepared for you. So that's that's the kind of the basic part to get together. Correct. Correct. And then it comes to the fun part, I would say, is how do you sit and value a catalog? It seems kind of overwhelming at times for those that may have never gone through this process. What's the uh, simple steps to valuing your catalog or even seeing if it's worth putting to market? Sure. Well, uh, the the quick and dirty way of, va- of valuing catalogs historically has been similar to really valuing any business in the sense that you look at a measurement of the earnings over a period of time, and then you apply a multiple that is determined in, in uh, somewhat regulated or at least uh, modified by the market, whether the hot, whether it's a seller's market, buyer's market, you know, the, the multiples can vary and they can also vary by genre. That's the, uh, that's the real sort of seat of the pants, old school version. You know, it's hey, you're, you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, I'm going to pay you 10 times that, you know, I'm going to pay you a million bucks. That number has ticked up in recent. Uh, oh, I haven't noticed. In, in recent times, if you hadn't noticed, uh, you know, I've heard tale of uh, a writer share going for 24 times. A hypnosis who um, has made a, quite a splash on the acquisition market. I, I even went to press with, I think it was 14 or something was the average multiple that they've been paying, which. You know, back in the I mentioned the go go the original go go years for Nashville and or catalogs in general back in the mid two thousands two thousand six two thousand seven before the crash in two thousand eight. You know, you were <laughs> that was the high end. You know, fourteen or fifteen was definitely a high end, almost top of the market. In Nashville, ten was the magic number. You know, it and so just a, a little bit of an indication of where we are now. I mean, it's certainly I think a, a seller's market to be sure. You still need to have quality. I, I think there's a real danger um, if there's a downside to a hot market. It's that catalogs that that don't quite measure up to the top shelf, you know, assets that are out there looking for deals can suffer, and you know, you end up. It, it can be a frustrating process. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, and that that was the case, you know, in the last real sort of gold rush period, you know, back in 06, 07, you know, you've got a lot of bright, shiny objects, you know, and they take massive, you know, numbers off the table. But then you've got stuff that's otherwise solid catalog, but it just falls right between the cracks. And, you know, the danger is, especially as an advisor to people who are on the sell side, is setting expectations properly. You know, I think it's real easy in, in a moment like today to get caught up in a rush and say, hey, I can go get you this, get you that and get you this to everybody because it's good times. You know, I mean, we're making fun deals right now, but it's you know, I think it, uh, honest assessment is is required because you can get yourself in a situation where you're you're out there, you know, you've you've sold the client up on the idea that 14s and 15s or, you know, that's the market. It's in the press. Well, you know especially in Nashville. And here's where that old multiple times the earnings thing doesn't quite hold true. 
uh, when you're dealing with immature copyrights, it's meaning songs that have just hit the charts or they've just gotten off the charts. So they're just starting to come down the charts rather than songs that were cut, released and have been earning for five, six, seven, 10, 20 years. I want to touch a little more on the whole multiple thing. How do they even come up with that random number anyway? What is that? What is a multiple? Is a multiple of what? The multiple is really keyed off of how much time a investor or a buyer is willing to or is betting on that they will be able to get the money back by earnings going down the road and building in a rate of return on top of that for the acquisition of the catalog. You know, the 24s times, it's hard to really figure out how that even works. Uh, mathematically, I'm not sure. Especially that it, if it's not full of evergreen copyrights. I'm not or sure it's like if it some, does. Some estate that has a historical value to it. I don't know how people do it either. I mean, I, I will say that one, the the 24 times one was a, that would be a bet worth 24 times because you have that much length of copyright life. You've got all, all those, you know, intangibles that you'd have to have to bet on. Hey, I'm willing to wait that long to get my money back. And part of the bet in the increase in the in the multiples is the idea that um you know passage of the mma has established this new music licensing collective and and established a new framework for digital licensing that everyone is optimistic is going to lead to a more equitable and profitable uh stream of income from streaming sorry i used streaming twice but you, you know where i'm going with that um and such that, you know, the increase in our share over the lifespan of that acquisition is going to effectively make that 24 times really feel like maybe 12 times, 13 times, 14 times, you know, in the end result that the money will come back in in that, you know, 12 to 14 year period rather than the 24. I'm a little bit of a devil's advocate. Just sure. speaking I, straight up with the I, MMA. I, there I, I get it. I'm skeptical, too. That. That figure is going to affect mechanicals. That's only one part of our streaming. It increases our, our the streaming percent or amount that we're getting paid on the uh, the mechanical portion of the stream. And and currently still country, which I know we have a growth to go because our income from streaming still just anemic in comparison to pop and some of the hip hop stuff. So. I see people valuing that and looking at that, and I'm still looking and going, I don't see where the uptick's coming yet. Now, I assume it will happen the more people get over to streaming, but don't you feel people are being a little overzealous in some of the uh, the rates that they're paying, given that, or am I thinking of it wrong? Yes. Okay. <laughs> both I, I'm I thinking do, of it wrong, and I'm no, overzealous? <laughs> I realized I could have answered both of those uh, with that same answer. No, I, I think... Uh, there is some certain overzealousness, over exuberance, uh, uh, stretch unnecessary or unreasonable stretching of, of the numbers. And I'm not trying to be negative. I love the fact and I think it's going to help us I am when too. you're being a realist of looking at our marketplace and realizing our streaming numbers are not there to support much of a difference unless you're a Sony tree with a massive catalog. Agreed. And I think that's why you would still see country multiples depressed below other genres i mean the the again going back to the 24 times i mean it was straight down the middle pop slash rock that is going to be ever present evergreen used a million times over so and, and i think you could expect the the chunks of change coming in on that song to you know only go up over time as as the rates adjust and all the rest but i get your point that adjustment is only is is a limited adjustment um i think it overall overall goes with a bullishness about 
the overall income pool that is going to be available as a result of uh, more and more people moving to streaming and paying a you know rate per month and that times 12 per year and you know how many more people in the household can you get hooked on the same you know crack uh it it's uh you know the numbers are astounding and and could take us you know well beyond where we were at the high point of the cd but it's still yet to be seen and i think there's still a lot of bets being made that we'll have to see if they pay off we 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 will see it's going to get interesting next few years i think now i want to touch on another you mentioned rate of return that's another figure Mm. that's thrown around a lot and if you want to define that a little bit that's a little more on my side as a publisher than yours as the seller and i would defer to you um probably (laughs) on that it's still a little bit of uh, of voodoo magic even to me but most buyers are looking at these things by taking the information that I, as a seller, I've given them. And as well as the futures deal, if you're doing a futures, if it's a writer going, you know, going with their catalog, um, you know, they will run out spreadsheets modeled off of a, a group of assumptions, right? And they'll run that income out for a period of, you know, usually seven years at a minimum. Sometimes they'll go longer than that. Um, and depending on how long it takes for that money to come in, et cetera, et cetera, that you can figure out what the right, uh, present value of that number is. And then there's a rate of return on the backside of that to figure out, okay, if we're going to pay X, we got to, we got to bake that into the cake and figure out, okay, are we making our 10%? Are we making our 15%, 20% or whatever the number? And if you really have to squeeze somebody, it's lower, but you know, they usually don't like that. writer I'm coming to you and since you said you, you consult and, and and help people do this like where like I'm kind of old school man I don't ever believe that you should cash out all your chips you know but I, I do realize a lot of people and some of the deals I've seen they're cashing all the way out they're selling which I what I mean by that is they're bringing in their co-pub share and they're also bringing in their writer share and just going for the check to get that check. How do you approach those conversations with writers of just like, hey, man, because I get it right now. Again, I'd call it my uh, CEO, Helen Murphy, likes to refer to it as a, it's pornographic, the amounts of values out the valuations <laughs> currently. And I wouldn't disagree with that statement, but it is hard to say no to a really big check. But then it's gone. Like, that's it. Here's yep. your, here it is. Here's your golden ticket. And that's all you get. So that's right. how do you walk a, a client through that conversation? Um, it could be a publishing company, too. I mean, usually if you're selling your publishing company, you're resigned to the fact that what you're selling is gone on that catalog. You're, I don't, it's not common for a publisher to have a holdback or a retained share. I don't think going forward, unless you're joining, unless you're, you're a joint venture and you're linking up with another partner or something. But on the writer's side, you do have uh, that big fat chunk of your income uh, as your writer's share. Cause you know, just taking a a traditional co-pub full co-pub deal, uh, 50, 50, uh, you know, one third of your income is co-pub share and two thirds of your income is writer share. So if you're getting offered a million dollars for your co-pub share, in theory, you're getting $3 million for the whole shooting match. Right. Um, and that can be pretty eye mouthwatering and, 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 and all the rest. And, um, I, I mean, historically my approach has been to always retain some portion of rider share as your dummy insurance for lack of a way of a better way of uh, naming it. You know, if something were to pop in that catalog, 
that you just had no expectation of. If you keep some piece of the rider share, you've at least got some piece of the future income to reap the, you know, to see the blue sky of that. That said, uh, every rider is different. Some are very precious about keeping contact with their catalogs. I mean, they're, they're like children, those songs, and you know, they want to always have some connection and don't, aren't comfortable letting go completely. Uh, others are one thousand percent capitalists and can wrap their heads around you know letting go of all of it most are th- i think are in the fat middle of uh and this has happened a lot more frequently in the last handful of years i would say maybe a little bit more than that but the idea of throwing in half the writer share because the, in the theory of again going back to a full co-pub uh if you're just selling a third of your overall share and selling co-pub you can sell two thirds and double your money. It's a, it's real easy math for people to, you know, yeah. to, to calculate, uh, by throwing in half of the writer's share. And that way you keep your other half to protect against feeling like an idiot, you know, um, <laughs> Having buyer's remorse exactly. or seller's remorse. Exactly. You know, and I've, I, there've been other permutations of that. You know, I've done some deals where, uh, you know, if the writer has been in a co-pub relationship, they sell all of the income stream, that is collected by the publishers, which would effectively means non-performance money plus the uh, the co-pub performance share, but they keep all of their writer performance money because again, that's where most of the income comes from. Or they only or they sell in half of that, but all of the non-performance. You can go, you can cut it up a lot of different ways, and buyers are always willing to say, "Hey, we can make your number a little bit better if you just throw in a little bit of you know writer share." So uh, it's become so commonplace that it's so it's it's very commonly and openly asked for at this point it used to be very much third rail don't sell your rider share but that's i had one rider put it to me this way when i when i was surprised he did it but he told me he goes i can do more with that money if they give it to me than than if i if i wait for it to collect over time and he was a very smart man so he, he did very, very true. well but and and if you factor in Instead of paying an ordinary income tax rate, which for a popular or a a successful uh, songwriter who's earning six figures a year when it's really you have a catalog worth selling, you know, you're in the top level of ordinary income rates and you're paying close to 40 percent when you factor in self-employment and all the rest on a catalog sale that Sony ATV was claiming at 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 the time back when it was really low 15 percent. you know i mean it's just crazy so when you when you bake that into the cake but when you're running the analysis of do i take a check now or do i hold on and see if i'm going to make more money the number of years it takes to make the same amount of money paying ordinary income tax along the way because you have to pay ordinary income tax as you earn it uh plus the time value of money plus 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 you know, it's, it's a lot of years. I don't want to give a fixed answer because it's different based on all the variables you plug into the to the model. But it's it, it makes a ton of sense if you can kind of do an assessment and say, look, barring a what would be a normal uptick in activity based on somebody, pa- an artist passing away or something like that. I mean, I think we've seen even with Prince recently or Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson's played all the time anyway, even when it's bad press, you know, it's getting, (laughs) um, but you know, I don't, I don't recall there being other than that credit card commercial that uses let's go crazy. It's not like Prince was all over the place for any more than the immediate month, two months, you know, right after he passed, it's not like Prince is everywhere now. So, uh, I think even the dummy insurance, 
you know, if if one of our modern and, and the applying this again to the country market, if one of our you know country artists unfortunately passed away and there was an uptick, it wouldn't be enough that you're like, man, I wish I hadn't taken that three million dollars. <laughs> it's just not yeah. gonna. It's just not gonna be the case. Look, my personal advice. I'm I just. I wanted to talk through all of that because there is the range. It's a full spectrum of how you would look at it. I'm certainly in the more conservative end of it in terms of advice. You know, if there's a way to craft it to make the numbers work that includes some but not all. You know, I'm 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 game for that. But I'm always going to advise that that's the way to make sure that you haven't let go of something prematurely or for, you know, not enough value. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AIMP Nashville Pubcast. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform and follow us at AIMP Nashville to keep up with news, events, panels, and even new episodes. The AIMP Nashville Pubcast is created by executive producers Dale Bobo and Tim Hunty, producer Brandon Harrington, mixing and editing by Casey Porter. Thanks for listening and supporting the AIMP Nashville Pubcast.